Good morning everyone. Let me add my word of welcome uh, this morning um, to those who are visiting as well. It's great to have you with us. We're doing a, a brief series on the theme of um, prophecy and the word of God. This series really sprang out of when we were doing our Advent series leading up to Christmas and we were looking at Jesus as the prophet, uh, uh, as the fulfilment of all of the prophets. Uh, and at the time it struck me that there's, there's so much more we could say about this whole matter of prophecy. Well, two weeks ago we heard the call to pay attention to the prophetic word until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. And we saw how that phrase reminds us of the promise of Jesus' return and it's something that uh, we should look forward to but it's, it's also something that we should anticipate will take place for us when we pay attention to the word in light of the truth that uh, all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus, in him. So as we pay attention to the word we will know the, uh, the presence of Christ uh, the morning star rising in our hearts. Uh, I'm quite privileged, really, because I get to do that all the time in my role as pastor. Very often I'll sit down and I'll, uh, I'll read the passage assigned for the week and initially sometimes not much really strikes me at all and I'll sit there thinking, I wonder how the heck I'm going to get a sermon out of this. But invariably, as I keep reading it, as I keep meditating on it, chewing it over, sometimes I'll listen to it being read on a Bible podcast. Uh, Su Kyung and I meet every Monday morning to discuss the passage we're preaching on. And as I do that, I find that my heart begins to burn, that uh, Christ becomes clearer and clearer till I begin to wonder how on earth I'm going to fit all of that into one short sermon. But that's an experience that's not just for pastors or Bible teachers. I can try, with the Spirit's help, to pass on something of that flame as I stand up here for 30 or 40 minutes once a week or for an hour or so in our community groups. Uh, during the week. But what about the intervening time? Your Monday to Saturday as you go about day to day life. Does the prophetic word have as central a place in your life as it does here on Sunday morning in our worship service? Last week we heard about the prophet's call as we saw modelled in Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah, the role of the prophet in Israel was incredibly significant. The Israelites were never told to expect to hear the voice of God directly as a regular thing, in in an individual way. For them, God spoke to them through the prophets Hebrews 1.1 says, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers 
by the prophets. It was in many, at many times and it was in many ways, but it was always by the prophets. So the prophets held a unique role in Israel. Uh, even though at one time Moses expressed a desire that I wish all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them, not every Israelite was a prophet. Nor should they expect to have that same encounter with the glory of God that we saw people like Isaiah and Ezekiel have. God raised up and he anointed prophets for key times and key roles within their history. And as we know then their words were then written down and became what we call the Old Testament. So the prophets were the Lord's gift to the people. Prophecy is never about my personal private relationship with God. It's a word that's given in order to be spoken to the people of God, proclaimed to address a specific and a pressing need. So an Israelite could say, our God is the God who speaks to his people because we have the law given through the prophet Moses and he continues to send us these prophets. When Israel stood on the brink of the promised land and Moses was giving his final address to them, he said to them in Deuteronomy 30, This commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It's not in heaven that you should say who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Now, I've seen this passage used to encourage Christians to to train themselves to hear God's voice, trusting that God will speak to their hearts. But if we look at the context, we'll see it's it's not really saying that. The verses just before it say, The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb and in the fruit of your cattle and in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers when you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in this book of the law. When you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So what is this word that is near them? Moses is saying it's this book of the law. The book is right here. Anyone can come at any time and hear what it says. They can hold it in their hands, God's word. And it's in their hearts as they hear it, as they learn from it, as they allow it to shape their thinking and their affections and as they go out and obey it. Now, see how Paul draws on this passage when talking about the Gospel. This is in Romans 10. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? 
The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. This word of faith that we proclaim is a reference to the Gospel message. Salvation that is in Jesus Christ through received by faith. True faith then is the response to this proclaimed word. Believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth, they're not actions that save you, they're not works that somehow complete God's work of salvation. The belief and the confession are based on the solid historical realities that Jesus is risen from the dead and he is Lord. That's the heart of the Gospel message. Jesus is Lord and is raised from the dead. And that's the message we've heard from the apostles and the evangelists. This Gospel message which has as its foundation, which is why Paul draws on that passage from Deuteronomy, has on its foundation that prophetic word of the Old Testament scriptures. The prophets weren't given to be a lesson on how we are to hear the voice of God. We shouldn't take the experience of the prophets as a model for what we should experience. The visions of Isaiah and Ezekiel and others of the Lord's visible glory in the temple, as I've said, were given for them at a crucial point in Israel's history in which the Lord had placed them. They were being commissioned for a specific task. And I want us to look this morning at two examples of passages that are sometimes wrongly used to teach us to hear the voice of God. The first is uh, the reading that we heard from Rachel of Samuel in the temple in 1 Samuel chapter 3. Now some background here, Samuel had grown up uh, from a young age in the temple. His birth was miraculous. His mother Hannah hadn't been able to have children. The Lord answered her prayer and gave her a son. So Hannah knew because of this miracle that the Lord would have a unique and significant purpose and role for her son. And in, in her song, it's a prophetic song, she sings about the king, even though at this time Israel didn't have a king. As it turns out, Samuel became the final judge and he became a prophet and his role was to anoint the first two kings of Israel, Saul and David. So this was a pivotal moment. It was a significant turning point in the biblical story. It would lay the foundation for all of the promises that were to come next about the Messiah, the King to come. So the Lord was raising up this young boy from the back blocks of Israel to be the one through whom his word would accomplish his purpose. Now Eli 
was the priest in charge of the temple. But his two sons were known to be corrupt and immoral and the problem was though that the priesthood was passed on from father to son. So once Eli died, these two evil men would be in charge of the temple. But actually God was in charge. He was in control of the situation. He'd already put the boy Samuel there and he says in 2.26, now the young man Samuel continued to grow in both in stature and in favour with the Lord and also with man. If that phrase sounds a little bit familiar, it's because that's the kind of words that were used of John the Baptist and it was also the kinds of words that were used of Jesus when they were children. That's a, a sign that this boy has something significant, uh, a significant role to play. Then a prophet was sent to Eli. We don't know who the prophet was, it just says a man of God. And this prophet foretold the demise of Eli's family. He predicted the death of Eli's two sons. And then he said in 2.35, And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. All of this is setting the scene then for this more well-known part of the story when the boy Samuel first heard the Lord speak to him. See how verse 1 tells us that the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision It's a reference to the ministry of the prophets. There weren't many prophets around. It seemed that the Lord wasn't saying much to his people at this time. He was giving them, as it were, a famine of his word so that when his word would eventually come, they would sit up and take notice. See also where the boy Samuel was. He was in the holy place, in the temple, where the ark of God was. The reason he was there is because Eli, who had bad eyesight, could no longer perform his duties in the temple. He couldn't see clearly enough to do what he was doing. And one of the particular roles of the the priest in the temple was to maintain the lampstand. Uh, the one that we saw a few weeks ago that I showed the children, the seven, uh, seven uh, branches on the lampstand, that the flame was to never go out because it was a symbol of God's presence. So Samuel is in there, in the holy place where the lampstand is uh, doing his, his job or at least waiting for the time when it was ready to trim the wick and to top up the oil. And he has this encounter then with the Lord in the holy place. Notice how his encounter was not just a call to be a prophet, it was also a conversion for him. He did not yet know the Lord and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Like the prophets to come that we saw last week, Samuel 
had to be brought into this intimate relationship with the Lord. He, it wasn't enough for him just to, to know what the Lord was saying. He actually had to know the Lord himself. And he had to be then sent forth from the presence of the Lord to the people. The Lord then gave him that message that we heard. The message for Eli that his sons would be judged and they'd no longer be in charge of the temple. So, what's the purpose of this story? Why are we being told all of these things are leading up to and including Samuel's encounter with the Lord in the temple? Well, we see the purpose of it in verses 19 and 20. Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground and all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. Everything that happened, his miraculous birth, his being sent to live in the temple, his growing in favour before God and men and this encounter in the holy place is all about showing to Israel that he is chosen, he is anointed to be a prophet and therefore he was authorised by the Lord to be the Lord's representative who would then select and anoint Israel's king. See, such a momentous event of setting up the monarchy for Israel required a person who was beyond doubt God's chosen person. So rather than being a lesson in how to hear God speak, this story shows us how God just continues to be faithful in fulfilling his promises. It shows us that he'll speak when and where he chooses and when he does speak, his word will accomplish what he sends it to do. So the Israelites were given an assurance, uh, not that they could know God's word in the way, exactly the way Samuel did, but they would know God's word as he spoke to them through Samuel. The second story that's uh, often used is that of Elijah on the mountain. Let me read this from 1 Kings chapter 19. Before I do, again, a bit of background to this. Uh, Elijah uh, has just had the victory over the prophets of Baal uh, when fire came down out of heaven and consumed the sacrifice and the Lord was shown to be the true and living God. But he was on the run from King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. Even though Baal had been shown to be false and the Lord true, Jezebel had threatened his life and so he fled. And he, for some reason, headed off in the direction of Egypt. It's almost like he was going back along the path that the Israelites had taken when they came into the land. And eventually he found himself at Mount Horeb, also known as Mount Sinai. And here on the mountain he has a Moses-like experience. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, 
I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? So, like Moses, Elijah finds himself in a hole in the rock on the mountain. And when he's there, the Lord passes by like he did with Moses. The wind, the earthquake, the fire should make us think of the thunder and lightning and fire and dark smoke that covered the mountain when the Israelites were camping there waiting to receive the law from God. At the time of Exodus, these were signs indicating the Lord's presence on the mountain. We saw, if you remember, when we looked at that story, how Moses and Aaron And on one occasion, 70 of Israel's elders and priests entered the cloud and they saw the Lord seated on his throne and they ate and drank with him. So these things were signs of the Lord's presence there on the mountain. But we're told the Lord was not in the wind. He was not in the earthquake. He was not in the fire. See, he'd manifested his presence at Sinai for a given time to establish the covenant. But after that, what had he done? He had gone with his people. He'd led them through the wilderness and led them into the promised land. He was with them on their journey. He didn't uh, wave goodbye to them as they left Sinai. And there in the promised land, he set up the place of his presence in the temple in Jerusalem. So that is now his centre of activity. I think that's why he says twice to Elijah, what are you doing here, Elijah? The Lord hadn't called him to have a ministry at Horeb or Egypt, if that was where where he was heading. He'd called Elijah to minister in Israel. So he commanded him then to go back to Israel and to do what he'd told Samuel to do. He was to go back and he was to anoint a new king who would replace the evil king Ahab and the evil queen Jezebel. Now this is the passage from which we get the phrase, a still, small voice. 
This is the verse that's often used to teach people that we need to go to a quiet place, turn off the loud noise and the distractions and listen for the still, small voice of God. But there's two things that we'll see if we actually look at the context of this verse. Firstly, Elijah didn't need at this time to learn how to hear the voice of God. For years he had been hearing God and he had been speaking God's word in Israel. And we see that Elijah was already hearing the voice of God as he was in the cave, even before the the fire and the wind and the earthquake came. He didn't need to learn how to hear God speak. He needed to be encouraged to keep standing firm and to obey the commission he'd already received as a prophet. Secondly, the the translation, a still small voice, so as you can see the, the top Um, One there is from the New King James Version, which is the same as the King James Version, translates it still small voice. Even the ESV, the second one there, is, is not the best translation, a low whisper. The Hebrew literally is a sound of silence. It describes that experience which we've probably all had at times, when there's a deafening noise and it abruptly stops. And what follows is what we, we might call a deafening silence. When our, our ears are straining to hear something, but all we can hear is nothing. It's a, a quietness that almost seems tangible. This silence wasn't the Lord speaking. In fact, the Lord broke the silence to speak to Elijah and say, what are you doing here? Go back to Israel. This silence simply confirmed the fact that the Lord wasn't in the wind or in the earthquake or in the fire because this revelation of himself at Sinai was complete. He'd given his law through Moses, he'd established his covenant with Israel and that covenant still stood. There was no need to come back and to start again with something new or different. He was no longer speaking from Mount Sinai because he was speaking from Mount Zion. So Elijah was to go and do what he'd already been doing, calling the king, calling the people to return to the covenant that they received at Sinai, to to read and to hear and obey the book of the law, to bring their acceptable sacrifices into the temple and to turn from their idols and to worship the true and living God in spirit and truth. So as in the case of Samuel, the Lord had raised up Elijah for a specific purpose at a critical time in Israel's history, a time when they were ruled by an evil king, they were overrun with idolatry and they needed to hear again this clarion call to repent and return to him. If we treat the prophets simply as examples of how we can learn to hear God's voice, we're not only misunderstanding the scriptures, but we're actually trivialising what God was doing through the prophets. 
He was overturning and raising up kings and nations and empires. He was pouring out his judgments on the earth. He was engineering everything to to steer history in the direction that he had planned for it. And he was doing it through the words spoken through the prophets. And if we trivialise the role of the prophets, we risk trivialising the role of the prophet to whom all the prophets pointed. Can you see that if we lower the Old Testament prophets and those stories to be just how regular people like us can hear God speak, then in the end we risk making Jesus just that to us as well. Not the word made flesh, not the full and final revelation of the Father who brings about the culmination of the plan of God, but just another example of how we are to follow him in listening to God and getting direction for life's decisions. And that's often how I hear Jesus being used by those who treat the scriptures not as a record of what God has done and is doing, but as just a guide as to what we can do. But if we see that it's all about Jesus, then we'll look to him not to emulate him or copy him, but to hear his authoritative word, to bow at his feet, to call him Lord, and then stand up at his command and live a life of obedience that glorifies him. The prophet Amos lived about a hundred years after Elijah. He's thought to be the first of the writing prophets, uh, meaning uh, the prophets who have a book in the Bible named after them. He prophesied during a relative time of prosperity and peace, but he warned of a judgement that was to come because in their prosperity the people had become complacent. They'd begun worshipping idols again. The rich and the powerful were oppressing the poor. And through Amos, the Lord pointed to this close link between uh, the prophets and his actions. Amos chapter 3 says, Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest? when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? You might recognise this as wisdom language. He's using pictures from creation and from culture to illustrate the principle and what he does is he lists six things that we can know for sure. 
at least if you were living at that time, you would understand those things like lions roaring and birds in snares. But he's saying, yes, two people must agree first before walking together. Yes, a lion roars when it's not hunting. And no, a snare won't spring up unless a bird has triggered it. And yes, people will be afraid when they hear the trumpet sounding an alarm and so on. And this is all to make the point that the seventh thing is also sure. If disaster comes to a city, yes, it is because the Lord has done it. God's sovereign actions as he rules over the kingdoms of the world are made known to and then declared by his prophets. God, the lion, has roared and so the people can be sure that he will do what he has declared. This word that Amos received was more than just a mere message. He was caught up in the action of God. God who does nothing apart from speaking his powerful word, the word that created the universe. So Amos felt that if he didn't prophesy, he would explode. It's no small thing to be a prophet. It's no small thing to stand up and and claim this is what God is saying. It's something that no one really would desire to have unless it was clear they were chosen and set apart and anointed for a task that, as history shows, for most of the prophets meant suffering and death. Amos wanted the people to know that if they didn't listen to the lion, the Lord, as he roared, they'd wither away and they'd come to nothing. His roar is a roar of coming judgement, but it's also a roar of coming salvation. The book of Amos finishes with this final prophecy. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the ploughman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. It was a, a terrifying thing to have to stand up and proclaim the Lord's judgments to his people but also what a wonderful thing to also be able to stand up and proclaim the Lord's salvation to them. We must know that God's word through the prophets was powerful to bring certain judgment if we're also to know that his word also brings certain salvation. Now, there's maybe a lot of questions that have been raised by all of this and uh, there are some questions that we'll seek to deal with over the next two weeks. What does this all mean for us today who are living in the fulfilment of this prophecy? Uh, As Paul says, 
I haven't got it up there, sorry. He says in 1 Corinthians, we are those on whom the end of the ages has come. Does the office of prophet continue today? Should we expect prophecy to continue both within uh, our local church and in the wider church? If not, why? Or if so, what should we expect it to look like? There may be other questions that this has all raised for you and I encourage you to come and tell me what those questions are so that I can uh, address them in the future. Next week we'll look at a survey of prophecy in action in the New Testament to see how God used prophecy to accomplish his purposes there. And then the following week we'll dig into the New Testament teaching on prophecy to understand what Paul meant when he said, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts especially that you may prophesy.